HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin, and this is episode two, talking to Alice and Plowshares Appalachia. Um, Appalachia? I never know. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I say Appalachia, I think, usually. Um, thank you for coming back. I'm happy to come back. I, I was happy to come back because I, I wanted a little lag time after our our kind of winter interview to see how things were shaping up at the start of spring. And we had our first uh, Homestead Homestead class. We did soap making and also made some, like, bath salts and kind of Valentine's treats with essential oils. And we had a great little crew and, you know, a pack of kids. And it, it went went off just like I imagined. And people were really glad to get together and and we really learned about making something from scratch. And we had a fantastic teacher, um, Jennifer Gleason, from Sunflower Sundries, who is doing really great work um, helping with regional food and, and do-it-yourself. And so, and with uh, Laura Sheehan from Full Circle Market, which is our local, you know, health and wellness store, which also has really great products and a good a good community of people who support it. So that was a start. So to, for people uh, who didn't listen to our first talk, um, do you want to just do a little micro introduction of who you are and what you do? And then we can launch right into the cultural work of restoring the people community it takes to restore the land. <laughs> okay, what a topic. Um I'm Alice Melendez, and I'm working uh, on my family farm in Winchester, Kentucky. It's kind of east-central Kentucky. And we've built a nonprofit called Plowshares Community. We're calling it Plowshares Community. And um, it's at plowsharesforappalachia.com. And we are working 
both to help transition what we call the farms in the middle or i mean it's it's not our term there's some great work about ag in the ag of the middle um online you can track it down fred kirshner does a lot of it um but farms who the the old time family scale farm that is not a giant commodity farm and it's not a 10 acres or 5 acres of intensive production. It's something in the middle, and it used to be really common. It would have a mix of, you know, animal protein production and row crops or vegetables, and it's it's just kind of a dying breed across the country. And so we're working both with farms on that scale. Um, here in Kentucky, more of them have survived because tobacco made that work um, for a whole a period of time when it was really hard to do with do with other crops. Um, and then we're working with people who have small holdings who want to start living more sustainably and start producing more of their own as a kind of uh, grid independence or, or a building, building the new society in the shell of the old. Um, and wow, so that's that what Plowshares is up to. And, and then, like I said, I'm on a family farm, and we're raising beef cattle and doing uh, corn and beans and transitioning, like, uh, land to organic, um, starting to grow all non-GMO crops and looking for ways to diversify and get into food that's directly for human consumption instead of growing animal feed. So that's that's my story, um, and I'm sticking so to it. Good, good, good intro. I mean, the the you know the thing we've been looking at in Agrarian Trust as we're mapping out the land under stewardship and the land under under what kind of stewardship and and how is the land that's coming into transition of ownership and transition of management kind of configured and owned. And there's just so many families. Um, with many heirs often, who own land that used to work as a functioning family farm economic unit, but then was no longer working as a family farm economic unit. And then basically people maybe still live in the house, but it's all rented out to other operators. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how the, like, what the structure is in in your neck of the woods and maybe why why tobacco let people stay a little longer? Yeah. Um, so on our farm, you know, one of the things that we've discovered, I, I don't have brothers and sisters, and, and I've been gone for a while, and, and Mom was actually running a food-related corporate business and tried different ways of hiring management and, uh, you know, it could never produce the results that she wanted for her land. And, and we're finally to a point since she sold her company and I've moved back. And we've also, I mean, she and her husband brought on another family, another father-son team, and then her husband's son so that we're starting to have a group that's big enough 
to handle the amount of work that it takes to make it economically um, because it you know it just takes more either either I mean a lot of people around here for example beef prices are really high the land here the price of land is low and it's really hilly but it's decent pasture because we have consistent water and so there's a lot of cow calf and there's a lot of feeder cattle I mean this is beef cattle country and some people manage to do that with a kind of a you can do it with less hands um, in some ways uh, but as we were trying to manage crops and cattle, I mean, it just it does, the six of us, that seems like a minimum size. And so we've pulled together a team. And, and building teams, I've, I've found two other people, two guys who know each other, um, one who's really interested in, in raising animals, um, wants to do, like, hogs and broilers, and another guy who um, has experience with greenhouse management. And they're going to come and join up at Plowshares and help run that space more intensively because it just takes more hands on the land to be able to man to manage land for a profit and like so the most successful organic farm in our area that's you know doing a really spectacular csa elmwood farms and i mean they have 25 people working there in the summer and that's what it takes to be able to produce the kind of quality food that they're producing and so that's one of the puzzles is you can't just have, like, you know, one one sibling in a family and an inheritance deal who wants to, who doesn't want the farm to go. It, like, it, it takes a team to run a successful farm, I, I believe. And um, so that's happening. Um, around us there are a lot of kind of uh, clan, big clannish families and who have managed to keep the land in production um, through those family relationships. But um, that's not the case. And, I mean, there's there's tons of farms, too, just, like, going up for sale that have become uneconomic because there's nobody there who's ready to – they don't have a team who's ready to do enough work to market and produce enough product to stay afloat. Yeah, I mean, you're just really, it's you're, you're answering the question really clearly, which is that in these moments of transition, if what we want is for more land to come under a greater diversity of crops and care, more hands on the land, keep it, keep the land serving the regional food economy or, or move it towards more of the regional food economy, that that transactional and financial equation happens in the context of a cultural and relational equation which is how does the family get along, how does the, the economy and culture of the place support those people working together. And um, I guess the question then that, that leads into the next question, which is what are the ways, you know, Wendell Berry talks about this big project of resettling the countryside and, you know, slowly but surely making the countryside a really interesting place to be and attracting people, not with necessarily a lot of money, uh, to, in farming, but making a, farming a, a more attractive uh, context to work in. 
So maybe you can talk more about what you experienced or what you noticed from doing those home homestead workshops. Like, what do you see is the attract is the driver in your community? Well, first, I would say, I mean, that concept of resettling America. I, it's one of the first things I ever put up on that website, which is a aggregation of a lot of time of thinking about this, um, because I just think it's like the critical the critical concept. And uh, it's – hold up, my kids are coming. No, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. And um, – just a second. Um, I'm being really conscious about trying to do that, and, and I don't I – don't, I think that you have to be in order to do it. I don't think that it's I don't think it's supported at all by our you know our existing structures. I think that for the most part um people you know what what's supported is sort of like jobs in isolation, nuclear families in isolation and it's it's really hard um to come up with I mean, you have to invite people, and, and people are doing that. It's intentional communities and this whole movement, but it's it has to be done on purpose. It doesn't happen on its own. And um, so that's why, I mean, that's a lot of the why of Plowshares was to try to bring in, to create a community of people who wanted to be interesting to each other and work together on the project of producing local food um, in a context, you know, where that's uh, not well established right now. And so, you know, being kind of pathbreakers. So it has to be a community of, of pathbreakers, too, at this time. And so I just but I think that it's not like the people aren't out there. And, you know, as I found, somebody found me through Beginning Farmer. I mean, we, we're finding each other slowly but surely and starting to make the little nucleus. Like like in permaculture design, there's the the concept of, you know, sort of like starting with an island of fertility and from that island let, letting that grow out like as a nucleus. And uh, that that works better than you you can't you can't transform a whole site um kind of like evenly all at once and without sort of like a massive outpouring of resources but if you have limited resources you make an island and that island starts to sustain itself and then that island starts to grow out from its borders and so that's that's conceptually like what we're trying to do to make this resettling thing start to happen and I mean, I can. It's it's starting to happen. <laughs> it's starting to happen both on our family farm and like by bringing in other families, like through the through the nonprofit. And then, as far as what I've seen at the homestead class, I mean, people. There's a really thriving um, artisan community in Berea, which is uh, about an hour south of us. And, you know, there's stuff happening. I mean, Lexington is more of a cultural active hub because of the university. And Winchester, like, wants to happen, too, you know, my town. And 
so there's a lot of energy going into the farmer's market, going into, um, you know, historical preservation projects. And it's it's just all over the country, I suspect, uh, little places are wanting to become unique again after the sort of, like, wave of suburbanization and samification. Yeah, the, like, homogeny, hegemony, monoculture, export, horrible. So... doesn't give a big love of place. Yeah. Yeah, um, today I just laid out the, um, the outline for this publication that we're doing in 2015 called The Greenhorn's Guide to Historic Preservation. Uh-huh. So there's just been a lot of energy, you know, basically young farmers getting old barns and trying to fix them up in a sensitive way and make use of what was and also tap into the logic that is embedded in those older buildings. Yeah, um, and, and older layouts. Yeah, that's that's cool. Uh, what's what's the infrastructure like? How does the infrastructure of the tobacco world kind of lay over into what you're envisioning in terms of the kinds of crops and the kinds of markets that you're pointed towards? Huh. Um, well, my family didn't raise tobacco, although there was tobacco raised on our farm. And what I've when it because tobacco was a higher value crop. Um, it was easier to confine to the most appropriate pieces of land. And as uh, my mom got into doing corn and beans kind of before I moved back, and as, you know, she's tried to make that model work, it's always been like we need to get more space into production. You know, when you were trying to deal with, prices that were totally out of your control and kind of unpredictable and low. And so you end up cultivating areas that probably wouldn't have been cultivated under tobacco. Um, there's a lot of old barns, which we've got some idea, you know, could be transformed into grain storage or some other kind of dry storage. I mean, you could put a cement floor in them and, I mean, they they could go that way, but they're beautiful barns. And, I mean, the tobacco is still working for a lot of our neighbors, Um, you know, so I suspect they'll keep doing it. Meanwhile, we're trying to get on on the hemp uh, pilot project, which hopefully, you know, down the line will turn out to be a similarly high-value crop. Um, which I'm really excited about, you know, as a way to replace trees for paper and fiber because I just I think that's really sick. Um, and so in the long run, I would love to be producing hemp for fiber, but to start out because of the challenges of harvesting hemp for fiber and, and processing it, we're going to do oilseed production if the Kentucky Department of Agriculture approves our application, and apparently they got way more applications than they expected, and so they were supposed to tell everybody by the end of January whether they were going to be legally incorporated into this pilot program, 
um, and allowed to grow the crop, and they've had to postpone, you know, announcements because they had so many applications. But we're excited about hemp because it's a great, um, you know, fourth year of the crop rotation because it's a soil builder and it's more profitable than wheat here probably. I, yeah, I forgot my the friend, question. My friend Rebecca. <laughs> but tobacco and tobacco infrastructure. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> no, We're using it to store equipment. Down there with those, with those guys, um, Michael Lewis, and uh, who's doing the veterans work with the. Right, with grow, Growing Warriors. Growing Warriors, yeah. And they had like a call out for all the old equipment from the, to look, everyone look in their barns to find the old equipment for cutting the, fi- like bending the fibers of the hemp. Right. And, man, they turned up a bunch of old stuff, and then now they're reproducing it and, you know, building based on the design of what was laying around, you know, building new. It's not very complicated. They're they're just, like, for kind of crushing the fibers a little bit, like, so that they can... Right, and it, it, takes, it takes a lot of, I mean, it's just nuanced, um, how, you know, you leave it in the field, and you it's... A, controlling the moisture and and there's a lot of timing questions and we just we don't have experience in that any anymore um and so it's going to be a steep learning curve but in this first year we we had to have um in order to be like a sort of serious applicant for the pilot program we needed to be connected with a a producer group who was going to process whatever the end product was and have a market for it and so we were pleased to get on board um, with the Hemp Oil Kentucky, and they're selling their product to Dr. Bronner Soap. And so they've they've chosen the cultivar, you know, and they're going to be working on having mobile processing as far as seed cleaning, um, so that we and so that's that's what that's where we're going to start on the hemp front. But I'm totally thrilled with the work that Mike and Growing Warriors are doing. Well, it's great to see both have, both the fiber and the seed getting getting mojo, getting attention, getting the cuz it's like it's like a milking breed and a beef breed. It's really um yeah, and when you can get it to work dual cropping, I guess is the holy grail of the hemp plant, you know, and and what would have been normal. One of the things that struck me in the soap class, Jennifer was saying, I mean, you know, she uses beef tallow, and they get it from a butcher that processes grass-fed beef, and, you know, they get hundreds of pounds of it at a time. Um, But, you know, you can also get it from your butcher at Kroger's or something if you're lucky at the grocery store. If you can find somebody, who will save it for you. And and somebody was asking, well, what about using pork fat instead of beef fat? And she's like, well, you know, in the old days when you couldn't go to the store and get soap, you would be saving every scrap of any kind of fat that you had so that you would have soap. And, it, you know, nothing – you wouldn't be making that kind of choice. You would be, you would be saving everything. And it would be the same, you know, with a crop. You, you would – use the fiber and you would use the seed for oil too. Um, but the labor needs of it um, were really high. And in a, the era today when everybody wants to be able to do everything with a couple of people and tractors, redding hemp doesn't lend itself to that. 
Right. I mean, it was done by slaves at some point in the history of the crop. And so now... Yeah, no matter how many smartphone apps we have, the amount of people that it takes to pull off highly, highly diverse and labor-intensive land management is going to keep taking humans. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you come back, you've got to find people who want to, who want to do it, and you got to get together, and you got to... Uh, you know, try some things out. So, like I said, we're we're working on business plans for the guys who want to come down to do these broilers and hogs, and we have somebody, you know, there's an infrastructure to plug into of somebody else in Winchester who's been selling to this and that restaurant and has advice. You know, so it's not, we're not in, it's not the bare beginnings. Like, there's something to plug into wherever you are. It's like the second step, but um, well, building a business is, plan to do that kind of... This is the end of our second step together, um, and this is the end of this segment of radio. I am just... It seems like you're racing forward, and I just can't wait to hear the next phase um, of, of development. I know that you had some openings for some helpers, and I, that's probably available on your website. Yeah, I mean, my, my numbers are on the website, and I'm... St- Definitely, you know, starting to find people who are interested, and I'm I'm looking for interested people who want to come try out, you know, a project, who want to try their hand at at managing land and producing from land. And I actually have found another landowner too who may have some space that she's willing to open up. So, you know, that's the broker position that that's one of the roles that I see for plowshares. Okay, man. Woman. Good to talk to you. It's so great. Thank you so much for what you're doing there. And thank you all for listening and staying interested. And um, I think we can just keep going and, and, and have confidence that if we just keep going, that's all we can do. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Alice. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.